there. Welcome to the National Working Waterfront Podcast, the show where we chat about topics related to the working waterfront, an important driver of the blue economy and development along our coasts, from New York to California, Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico, and everywhere in between. As always, I am your host, Ashley Bennis, Planning Specialist with Texas Sea Grant. And this show is a collaboration between the National Working Waterfront Network and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. For this episode, I've invited guests from the Island Institute in Maine and the Port of Corpus Christi in Texas to sit down with me and discuss the National Infrastructure Package as currently supported by the Biden administration and the Senate and awaiting a vote in the House of Representatives. Now, this is hugely important because the infrastructure that supports working waterfront activities has lacked major investment for many decades, leaving it vulnerable to natural and man-made risks, as we have recently seen in the Gulf and East Coasts. This bill is very ambitious, touts a hefty price tag, and is the biggest proposed investment in the country's infrastructure since the development of the interstate highway system. For reference, The highway system was completed in 1955. This bill proposes a lot of investment in a lot of different sectors, but this is the Working Waterfronts podcast. So the discussion today will focus on how this bill may benefit working waterfront industries and communities. In particular, we're going to be chatting about ports. These economic hubs rely on coastal and inland infrastructure to transport the goods that are both imported and exported by the United States. Their need to be on the waterfront is shared by a variety of different activities, which can often be in conflict and require a little balance. Not only that, waterfronts and the industries that reside there face many challenges, including declining water quality, population growth introducing competing demands that often results in a loss of public access and traditional uses on the waterfront, as well as threats from climate change like ocean acidification, sea level rise, erosion, and stronger storms. Regardless of size, these waterfronts are distinctive and irreplaceable assets contributing to the economies and cultures of their regions, which is why an investment like the infrastructure bill could be imperative to their survival. So with that, I would like to introduce my first guest today, joining me from my neck of the woods in Corpus Christi, Jeff Pollock with the Port of Corpus Christi. Um, I'm excited you could join us today, Jeff. Thank you so much for taking some time. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what your role is at the Port of Corpus Christi? Sure, Ashley, and thank you so much for having me. Um, The strategy line of the at the port includes essentially all things planning and all things environmental. So on the planning side, that is everything from internal organizational strategic planning to land use planning at a variety of scales from the individual project scale up through what I would call macro master planning around uh, mobility issues or long-term growth trajectories. And on the environmental side, that's everything from regulatory permitting through proactive investments in habitat conservation or restoration, um, as well as you know, really what's become the front and center for me lately, a, a focus on on how we operationalize energy transition and our commitments to decarbonization. Um, and so that that involves uh, that involves our burgeoning technology advancement program, which really encompasses any innovations that we're bringing to bear on any of those subjects, including a strong emphasis on geospatial tools. So using uh, GIS-based data for planning and problem solving. That was a lot more than I was expecting. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> that's that's a lot. And um, a lot of the things you said, it seems like this this infrastructure bill could really help. Um, passed, if passed by the legislation, it could really help with that. Um, just to, I know I went over some of the, you know, pressing issues that waterfronts are facing, but can you kind of, for this particular region, um, talk about what are the biggest um, threats and challenges that um, the ports here in the Gulf are, are facing? Sure, absolutely. So I do think it's important to start by saying that, um, and I'm going to 
I'm going to quote my boss, our CEO, Sean Strawbridge on this and say that if you've seen one port, you've seen one port, which is to say that um, ports are inherently unique to the geography and uh, commercial context in which they're located. And so even though there are certainly some pervasive challenges and opportunities that are fairly ubiquitous across uh, at least coastal ports, I think it's really important to, to recognize that I my ability to speak um, broadly for ports in general is somewhat limited and I'm just sort of sheepish about doing that. But I definitely can identify some of the, the common challenges that um, several of the public ports on the, on the Gulf Coast share. And, and uh, first and foremost, I would say that we, um, in aggregate, there are a number of us that are in, in desperate need of final increments of federal support to complete really critical channel projects. Of course, the, for coastal ports, access to deep water is literally the the lifeblood of the port. It's it's literally the the fundamental gateway that connects everything we do to the world marketplace. And in the case of the Port of Corpus Christi, we are um, essentially thirty years in on a deepening and widening project. Um, we've seen the cost of that project balloon over the last several years, uh, such that we've had to sort of face a a revolving door of reauthorization and securing funding. I think we finally see the light at the end of the tunnel, but um, certainly, you know, there's, there's, we can never say enough to impress upon the federal administration um, about the importance of making sure that there's sufficient funding available to deepen and maintain our, the, the ship channels that support um, our nation's ports especially as we see the world fleet growing in size, vessel size that is, and, and we face limitations in, in channel capacity that, that translate directly into limitations on economic growth and development for the country. So that I, I'd be remiss if I didn't start by mentioning that challenge, which is not unique to the Port of Corpus Christi, but it's certainly a challenge that has been um, particularly front and center and particularly painful for us. Um, beyond that, I think that that I think everything else I would mention with respect to the, the infrastructure package, I would put in the category of of opportunity. Uh, we see, you know, the the working version of that infrastructure talks identifies I think around seventeen billion dollars for the nation's ports, which is definitely an appreciable um, some money. It, it you know one could argue it. Uh, there's there's need for much beyond that, but I, I certainly think that there's a real opportunity with those funds to um, to do a lot in the way of of modernization in terms of the way that um, goods move through our ports. I mean, we talk about ports as as multimodal hubs, and there's there's tremendous opportunity uh, to modernize the data streams that inform those processes and and the technology that that underlie them. So I think tremendous opportunities there. And then I'll just round this out by saying the thing I think that that we at the Port of Corpus are perhaps most excited about in the infrastructure package is the focus on energy transition and active decarbonization. So we really have risen to a position of prominence in the world's, uh, the, the world energy marketplace, particularly since 2015 with the, the lifting of the ban on crude exports in the United States really changed our paradigm at the Port of Corpus Christi from an import port to an export port. And in the intervening years, we have really assumed the pole position in, in energy exports uh, for the United States and uh, exporting the, the literally a majority over half of, of the energy that, that is produced domestically. And so for us as, as the energy port of the Americas, we are, intensely focused on what the next iteration of that identity looks like. And uh, the infrastructure package identifies or, or speaks about the identification of four designating four hydrogen production hubs uh, for world scale production and export. We are intensely focused on attaining that designation. We, we think that we are uniquely suited geographically, commercially, and even administratively, structurally, 
um, to assume a leadership role in hydrogen production export for the United States. We think it is a natural extension of the the uh, role that we've assumed as the energy port of the Americas when we talk about about um, oil and gas. And and so to see that called out the way it is in, in the infrastructure package is very exciting. Likewise, the package uh, speaks about the designation and investment in hubs for carbon capture and storage. And for many of the same reasons, we at the port uh, feel that we are ex- extremely well positioned to provide that function, uh, not just for our existing customer base, but really to pro- provide carbon management solution for entities well beyond our region, certainly at a national scale and, and possibly even at a hemispheric scale. Happy to talk more about that if you're interested. But the short of it is we're extremely excited, excited about what we see coming together. Yeah, I like that. You um, talking about challenges, but just so so positive about it, you jumped ahead to my next question and really just dove right in, which is fair. But would it be fair to say that um, if these federal funds don't come through, which it's looking very likely, so I want to be very positive about that. But if these federal funds weren't to come through, um, there would be some real challenges at trying to figure out how to fund all these massive projects. Yeah, I think um, that's partially true. I think certainly the the infrastructure package as drafted could do a tremendous amount to accelerate investment and growth in particular sectors, um, particularly driving the energy transition and, and particularly around um, the, the role of hydrogen production as a cornerstone in that transition. That said, it, the infrastructure package and direct funding is not the only tool in the federal toolbox. And, um, you know, particularly, for example, around carbon capture, use and sequestration. We know the federal administration is taking another look at the 45Q credits for captured and, and sequestered carbon. And so there are other levers by which the, the administration can push and pull um, the marketplace in a certain direction. And, and so I do, think, um, I do think that there are some pretty serious market forces at play here, even independent of those federal incentives. When we talk about hydrogen, we've seen some really powerful announcements come out of, of um, different nation states in both Asia and Western Europe. And it, you know, really declarative statements about entire national economies moving to a hydrogen-based energy paradigm. And, and those announcements are coming from countries, including countries that are not particularly well-suited to be producing or don't intend to necessarily produce all of the hydrogen that they will need. And so market forces like that will do a lot to drive investment in technological innovation and, and the other steps in the, the value added chain that, that are required to create that, you know, the full life cycle of hydrogen production export uh, at a, on a global scale. So even though I think that that federal incentive and federal investment, well-targeted federal investment is really key here, um, I don't think that it it is it is the only thing driving the transition and the investments we're seeing. I am interested in learning and hearing more about um, the discussion on carbon management um, specifically. So, for the port here, were you talking about um, carbon capture, carbon sequestration? Are those some of the considerations that are being made down here um, for this? You know, influx of money like. What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So the the infrastructure package as drafted calls out or identifies specific uh, lines of funding for hydrogen and for carbon capture and storage. And those are, are they're, they're identified separately and they're separate dollar amounts and the pathways to those investments are separate. So, um, you know, that they're both are major considerations both are are figuring prominently in our strategic direction not just because of what we see um, in terms of federal priorities in the infrastructure package but really because of the signals that we see in the marketplace and the frankly the 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 imperative that we feel as a global player in the energy space um you know in in particular the the sixth uh report that came out of the intergovernmental panel on climate change earlier in august was 
you know, a, a very sobering affirmation of what a lot of us have already, um, you know, known or suspected. And, and in, in our case, as an energy port, as a port that has spent the better part of the last century moving black molecules or derivatives thereof, um, it, it was a real sort of existential moment for us and a moment that resonated very, very deeply with many of us on the leadership team at the port. Um, and I think it was, it was a, a, a moment where we decided that we were going to double down on a lot of the, the ambitions and declarations that we've made and, and really just be um, very, very bold and very aggressive in, in sort of our position on climate action and on decarbonization. So um, specifically for us, we envision carbon capture and storage to take the form of centralized infrastructure, wherein the port or some you know some private sector team on behalf of the port or some combination thereof uh, captures. Sorry, let me say it differently. Takes carbon from customers' fence lines. So you know, we, we imagine that customers would really be responsible for deploying their own carbon capture technology because different industrial operations require different strategies for capturing carbon emission streams. But as individuals, individual entities capture carbon, again, whether that's in a refinery or whether that's at a hydrogen production facility and deliver that carbon to their fence line, we see the port's role really in as being part of that constructing and, and uh, installing that centralized infrastructure that takes carbon from customers' fence lines, centralizes it in, in, in a central pipeline, um, pressurizes that CO2, and gets it offshore to, for, for um, deep injection under the seafloor into, into the geology that we know is, is very well suited for long-term carbon storage. Um, don't think necessarily that that offshore is the only solution there, but there are some some elegant efficiencies when you talk about doing that in an offshore environment instead of an onshore environment. I use the words uh, construct and own, referring to the centralized piece and the port's role in it. The reality there is that we very well could simply be a landlord for that process. We own the geographic transect from our customers' fence lines all the way out to offshore state waters. And so um, I think that the implementation model here could take a variety of forms, but the, the, the take home is that we absolutely, we, the port absolutely sees a large scale centralized infrastructure system for taking captured carbon and getting it under pressure and under the ground into geologic storage. That's pretty amazing as far as, cause um, I know being down here in, in the Gulf of Mexico, a huge energy production happening here. So when you're referring to customers, you're referring to these industries and energy productive um, companies that that reside here on the coast. Yes, I am in part. I mean, we, you know, so I think that that really any any energy, anyone in the energy space, anyone in the frankly in any industrial space today or in the future is going to need a solution for managing their carbon. I think what we're going to see is, you know, not just because of companies, individual and internal ESG and decarbonization imperatives and objectives. I think we're we going to see that um, it frankly is, is a matter of um, absolute necessity based on a combination of federal incentives and federal requirements and simply um, just what the, the consumer will demand. And so I think that for our existing customer base and, and any new, um, any new industrial, uh, entities that, that come into the gateway and want to do business in our region, we think that there is essentially going to be a universal need for this carbon management solution. And, and we know that, that individual entities, individual port customers who, who exist today or, or or may come into the gateway in the future are, are unlikely to make the, the significant investment required in, in capturing their carbon emission streams unless they know definitively that there will be a solution, a place to send that carbon 
on the downstream end. And so that's where I think that a public entity like the port um, being declarative about our intention to develop that solution, that centralized solution sends a really critical signal to the marketplace that we are intent on supporting that, uh, providing that service to our customers and, and that that certainty will be there so that the, the signal is, you know, to, to customers, it's safe to begin exploring what that, that carbon capture solution looks like for you in, as individual entities and how the federal incentives can help make it economical because we are working on the downstream end to, to, to create that um, carbon management solution. I mean, yeah, because, uh, I mean, ports and in, in, it's a globalized competition um, that you guys are dealing with. And I know with um, more um, kind of connectivity and and action with the, especially the Panama, Panama Canal and opening up those markets and stuff, um, something like that, that major infrastructure and being able to assure your customers that you have that ability here, that's got to be making this region a lot more competitive, um, which is very exciting. So you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, what we find as a port is that we are, and especially an in, in international gateway at that, where the, the majority of our cargoes um, move to international markets. In fact, the port of Rotterdam, with whom we have a, a memorandum of, of understanding and a peer-to-peer um, exchange program, they, that's, you know, they're the, the single uh, largest destination for cargoes leaving our port. But what we find is that we are absolutely in competition with, with locations all over the world when new industry is interested in, in um, developing a new location. And so that the ability to offer a soup to nuts carbon management solution for um for new industry or new economic development is absolutely going to be a key differentiator in the modern world and something that not only will um, will change our relative competitiveness domestically, but really on an international scale. And, and the last point I'd like to make about that, the, there are, um, we're lucky to have some of the, the preeminent experts on industrial decarbonization and geologic storage right up the road at the University of Texas at the Bureau of Economic Geology. And they've spent the last decade and a half assessing and mapping the geology of the um, near offshore water. So, you know, the, the, the state-owned portion of the Gulf of Mexico and have determined that it is, it is uniquely suited for long-term storage of carbon. So uniquely suited, in fact, that, that, they, you know, one of them in particular envisions a day when, when liquefied CO2 from other parts of the world uh, is shipped to the Gulf of Mexico for storage. In other words, this represents a, um, you know, a chance for us to make a contribution on a global scale to active decarbonization, which of course represents a, a unique commercial opportunity, but also represents an opportunity for our region to help move the needle on the, on the climate action that we know is so imperative. Wow. I, I hadn't realized that. That's really, that's really exciting news. Um, wow. I, so, I mean, in general, this, uh, bill and, um, all of this activity that's happening, that's very obviously going to benefit the port and, and help with growth there. But Working waterfronts are are more than just the ports and the industry on there. There's communities. There's a lot of smaller, I mean, fishery sets and different activities that need this access um, to the waterfront. Um, so, as far as you know, and if you can speak to this at all, like, are there other benefits that you guys are planning for or see as far as your surrounding community or these other? Um, companies, industries, activities that are happening on the waterfront, like is the port acting as an anchor to help these other um, activities thrive as well? Yeah, I, I love this question because I, I'm, a, you know, I come to this business as a, a community planner at heart. Um, I have a sort of a hybrid of background of coastal ecology and, and growth and sustainability issues in coastal communities. And so for me, um, 
I have the good fortune of, of having a, you know, a, a, a boss and, and a leadership team at the port that, that allows me license to, um, to really focus on the relationship between our port and the broader community context. And so I think I can answer this on a couple different levels. Um, I think, first of all, I'll just say for the record that preservation of, of the, the character, you know, the character and, um, and, and sort of identity and authenticity of true working waterfronts, not, not sort of the token tourist relic of historic working waterfronts, but really the, you know, a true functional waterfront that drives the, that is the, the foundation of a, of a coastal community's economy. I, I feel like um, there are few more important, if any, more important place facing coastal communities. And so this is something that I, I spend a lot of time contemplating. I think at a very high level, I can say that, um, you know, as goes with the port, so goes the rest of the community, which is to say that as, as we see new investments in the port um, and in port activities, as we see growth in, in, in sustainable directions for the port, there is an inherent um, rising tide for all all boats in the in that in that coastal waterfront um, in a metaphorical sense, not not in a literal sense, right? So I think that we're in a unique position as a port um, where we are able to directly support community initiatives as a function of our growth, and specifically the Water Code in Texas, which is the enabling legislation over ports. Mm-hmm allows us to give up to 5% of our annual revenues through our promotion and development fund to community nonprofits. And our giving is, is in four major buckets. Um, and so we are able to make literally direct investments in community institutions, um, particularly, and we're particularly focused on those that, that address, you know, critical community need and, or uh, promote, quality of place and, and quality of life in a community. And in the coastal community, those topics, quality of place and quality of life are inextricably bound to the character of, of the waterfront. In our case, that's both the downtown waterfront and the working waterfront. Um, we also are, are you know, making physical investments in that experience. And so in our case, the port headquarters uh, just moved and we in fact are just finishing up our move into a new building um, at the mouth of the inner harbor of our ship channel, so right on the waterway. And the port owns a, an appreciable amount of real estate in adjacent real estate in the heart of our, our downtown sports, entertainment, and arts district. And we actually are have, have just kicked off final design, detailed design on what we hope will be a world-class public space just outside of our, our new world-class headquarters with the idea of creating a destination that truly celebrates the unique attributes of this community at that location where you can stand at the mouth of the inner harbor at the mouth of our working waterfront and be within spinning distance of some of the largest vessels in the world you know the world fleet which regardless of how you feel about boats and maritime industry and maritime infrastructure it the experience of having a thousand foot vessel pass in front of you like that is staggering. And I, you know, I've seen how it affects my eight-year-old mother and my eight-year-old son and their reactions the same, which is to say their jaw hits the ground because it is, it's just such a powerful and unique experience. And it's so of Corpus Christi and of this place. And so that's an experience um, that we intend to celebrate, you know, through this, this destination, through this placemaking activity that we're doing, which is, you know, literally a direct investment in creating a place that brings together that that you know that context, that community context, and that experience, and offers something truly unique to the people who live and visit here. So um, I think that, and I'm happy to talk more about that destination. But I think I, I offer that just as an example of the ways in which ports, as anchor tenants on working waterfronts, can use their land holdings and 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 you know their part of the coast to create really unique community experiences that uh, sort of reinforce that working waterfront experience, but also democratize it and 
give access to it for the masses, which I think is so critical. I yeah, I would agree. And as someone who who moved to this region three and a half years ago, I can really testify to that awe-inspiring moment of seeing these major vessels just seem so accessible um, to us on the coastline here. And I'm I'm thrilled to hear in your response talking about the community and accessibility because I know when major industry goes in or or port expansion and stuff can often displace other people and stuff. So I'm excited to hear that there's reinvestment into the community. And if, you know, even half the ports around the country really take this uh, opportunity to do that as well, then, then it's going to be really amazing for the growth of these working waterfronts. Um, well, I appreciate the time you spent with us. This has uh, been very enlightening for me. As someone who lives in this region, I've learned a lot. Um, and hopefully our audience, audience will too. And um, just kind of want to wrap it up um, and think on a larger scale as far as like regional. Um, Gulf of Mexico, a lot of the states down here, we, we work well with each other. And I love that idea of, you know, the Gulf being just one of the premier locations for carbon capture. Um, I know something that was added to this bill um, due to the work of some of the representatives in Texas and Georgia was the expansion of Interstate 14, um, which would be uh, completing its uh, ports or, or forts to ports project, as I understand it, um, which would run from like Midland, Odessa, Texas, through Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and into um, Augusta, Georgia, um, really connect, making a huge corridor between these military bases and ports. And I was just wondering, um, I know they've been working on that for a while, and it's been kind of stalling. This federal infrastructure bill um, do you think it's providing an opportunity for these cross-jurisdictional um, big regional projects more so than maybe some other funding opportunity? Like, are you seeing more um, ports and waterfronts and communities working together to try and get these regional projects off off of paper into um, implementation? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a great question. I don't know to what extent we've seen that regionalism or interregionalism manifest yet, but I certainly do think it rolls downhill. And I think when the federal administration sends a clear signal that, um, first of all, that it recognizes ports as the economic engines of their respective regions and beyond, and then in turn says that that it is committed, it being the administration is committed to making investments in the infrastructure that connect those engines to each other to maximize synergy at the, and productivity at the national level, that is a very clear and powerful statement. And I think it's one that you will see the, the you know, ports in their respective regions really sink their teeth into and try to double down on. So I do think that this is one of those cases, you know, where, um, where, where federal legislation and federal investment will really beget investment and collaboration at the regional level and between regions. So I think, you know, I think the power of that kind of signal really can't be underestimated. Um, I think it's a little early in the process for us to say that we're, we're seeing that on the ground operationalized yet, but through entities like the American Association, um, excuse me, the, <laughs> the AAPA, and I always forget which A stands for association. Um, <laughs> and so that's an acronym that I, I'm just gonna um, I, I'm just gonna stick to the acronym there. But what you know, as we see the the policy platform at, at AAPA, which is a you know really powerful national organization, um, as we see that that you know platform morphing and emerging in response to what's coming down from the federal level, I think we'll no doubt see an emphasis on interregional and interport collaboration um, and capitalizing on new strategies for doing so that we haven't seen historically without that that federal emphasis. So I really I am a firm believer in in the power of the of federal policy to wag the dog on on behaviors and and uh, and collaboration at the at the regional level. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Jeff Pollack with the Board of Corpus Christi joining us today. Um, 
really enlightening stuff. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me. We just heard from Port of Corpus Christi Chief Strategy and Sustainability Officer Jeff Pollack, giving us some perspective of how major institutions like ports and harbors are considering using federal funds to enhance their waterfronts. But as we all know, waterfronts are not just consistent of ports and harbors. Uh, my next two guests are joining me from the Island Institute located in Maine, a state that includes over three 3,400 miles of coastline and 120 islands, and is the home of a variety of marine-based industries, uh, including fisheries, boat building, aquaculture, manufacturing. We got a lot to talk about. Maine communities have a long history living along and working within the ocean. It is the source of livelihoods and cultural identity. The Island Institute works with these communities to ensure they have access to tools to thrive in the ever-changing environment and address unique challenges to become more socially and economically resilient. We will hear more about this, the challenges that Maine communities are facing, and how other types of working waterfront industries are planning for their future. I'd like to welcome our two guests today, Nick Batista, the Senior Policy Officer, and Sam Belknap the Senior Community Development Officer from the Island Institute. Nick and Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome. Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, thanks for having us. So let's start off um, because I didn't know a lot about of it about the Island Institute. So can um, maybe you want to take turns, but can you uh, just take a second to kind of explain, you know, what the mission is of the Island Institute and what kind of work you each get involved in? Sure. Happy to, Ashley. Uh, so the Island Institute's a 38-year-old community development organization that's committed to supporting Maine's coastal and island communities. Um, and really, we work every day to build community from the sea up. And my role at the Institute is overseeing our blue economy work, as well as our climate solutions work. And our work on working waterfront kind of comes in at the connection of these two, uh, these two bodies of work. And Nick, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I'm the senior policy officer at the Island Institute, which means I'm our in-house lobbyist and government relations person. I also um, am the strategy lead for our strategic partners team. Um, and I've been at the Institute about 10 years. It's great to be here with the National Working Waterfront Network. Um, one of the first projects I, I worked on when I came to the Island Institute was setting up the National Working Waterfront Network. Um, so it's great that, that we're all here still. Yeah, I that was uh, when I was talking to Sam, that was something I hadn't known. And I was excited exploring your website, learning about all the different working waterfront related activities you guys do. But then I learned that you guys were really instrumental in helping to create the network. So, I mean, I wouldn't be here without that. So I appreciate it. It's really nice to learn. Um, so my previous guest um, here in the Gulf of Mexico, which is where I am, and he kind of talked a lot about some challenges that we're facing down here. And although a lot of it's similar, I know that each region of this country and all over the world are facing their own unique challenges. So um, would you like to speak a little bit about um, some of the challenges that Maine coastal communities and the working waterfront there are facing? Sure. So Maine is an incredibly rural state and our coast is equally rural. So when we're talking about working waterfronts, a lot of times we're not talking about kind of port scale infrastructure. We're talking about small wharves, docks that support a handful of fishermen and women uh, up and down the coast or a handful of aquaculture operators. And because of this, one of the main challenges is just access to resources to help support these pieces of infrastructure. Um, right now, the coast is facing the impacts of climate change from uh, rising seas and coastal flooding, warming waters, ocean acidification, and all of these challenges impact both uh, the fisheries and the working waterfronts that provide the critical connection from the ocean to the economy. And COVID-19 and the recent pandemic has really highlighted a lot of the um, development pressures that are ever present along the coast. Um, but as more new Mainers come to enjoy our, our coast with us, the working waterfront is incredibly desirable uh, piece, in, represents incredibly desirable pieces of property. And 
as the uncertainty around climate change and other regulations that are impacting our fisheries kind of come to the fore, um, people oftentimes look to uh, look to capitalize on their investments in these working waterfronts and um, can sell them to developers. And, and once they're gone, they're gone for good. So um, there's a host of challenges, and I'm sure Nick can expand upon what I've said. Yeah, and I, I would just add that, you know, when we think about Maine, we think about our, our small-scale working waterfronts for the most part. Um, but when it when it comes to comparing Maine to other parts of the country, it's worth, you know, just noting that the Maine lobster, the, the North American lobster, the lobsters we catch here in Maine, um, have been the single most valuable species landed in the U.S. for a number of years running. Um, Maine lobstermen um, land uh, in you know in three towns in in Maine where where Sam and I live or, or close to it Rockland Stonington and Vinalhaven. The value of lobsters landed in those three towns is more than the combined value of all the commercial fisheries in New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island um, put together. Maine fishermen take over four hundred and seventy thousand commercial fishing trips a year. Um, Virginia is the next closest, and they're at about 220,000, at least on the on the East Coast. So for us working waterfronts, um, while they are small and discreet and you know locally specific, we have a lot of them, and they're really important. And the challenges that we're facing here in Maine are um, similar to challenges facing, facing communities elsewhere, too. And Nick, if I could just jump in on the end of that, um, I think because of the importance and because of the complexity of the challenges, it really leads us as the Island Institute to take a very holistic approach in supporting the working waterfronts. And we, we work to support working waterfront resilience as broadly defined as we possibly can define it. So this includes questions around access and preservation of working waterfronts, but it also includes business resilience and climate resilience. So our work focuses on not just ensuring that this infrastructure is there and that people can access it, but that it is as climate forward as it can possibly be. And a large majority of our work these days is focusing on driving clean energy solutions and decarbonization into the working waterfront, uh, because we believe that Maine seafood economy can kind of lead the way in climate change mitigation. Yeah, almost act as a leader. I mean, those are some really impressive numbers. I didn't realize when people think of lobster, they do think of Maine, but hadn't realized just how much of an impact it has. Um, so yeah, being forward thinking and thinking well into the future about how climate's going to affect you is super important. And uh, my previous guest um, from the Port of Corpus Christi talked a lot about the decarbonization and how the Gulf of Mexico is is primed to, to kind of help with that. And so it's exciting to see how all these different uh, areas and regions of the coast are, are considering how they can contribute to this and be a leader and, and have these positive impacts. So in thinking about what can we do and how can we kind of um, change for the better uh, the infrastructure bill that we we're talking about, um, if that gets passed in Senate, um, what do either or both of you see as some of the benefits for your particular region in Maine and your coastal communities? Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in with a, a short answer here, and then maybe we can dig into it a little bit more. Um, the bipartisan infrastructure package makes significant investments in dredging, broadband, clean energy, and um, larger port infrastructure. Um, I think these funds can help part of a working waterfront project and ultimately helps make a, you know, individual working waterfront more sustainable over the long term. As Sam was saying, we're, we take a holistic view of working waterfronts at the Island Institute. And um, I think these are pretty significant investments in a couple of pieces that are important. Every working waterfront project is unique. Um, every working waterfront is, is in its own specific local context. There isn't a federal program or entity charged with looking after working waterfronts. There's no working waterfront budget line in the federal budget. Um, but there are a wide variety of federal funds that can be used to support working waterfront projects. Um, and so, you know, when we think about the infrastructure package at the Island Institute and other major federal spending packages, um, here's how we're approaching them. We're, we're looking at 
the technical assistance and local capacity needs to pull together a specific project um, and tap into the multiple different funding streams to support part of that project. Some of those may be federal funding streams. Some of them may be state, some of them may be private, um, other local funds. The amount of money in the infrastructure package is staggering. Um, and it, and in a lot of sectors, this means shifting from um, scarcity mindset and scratching for every dollar to one of abundance. Um, I spend a lot of time working on broadband and there's a bunch of broadband money in here that will change the landscape for the connectivity landscape for the country. Um, that has some pretty significant impacts for working waterfronts, not directly, but you know, many of the working waterfront businesses we work with are at the end of peninsulas. They're in places where there's not great connectivity and having access to good broadband infrastructure is part of how their businesses will be sustainable into the future. The other Part of the, our approach for this bill is, is recognizing that much of the funding will flow through states or other entities um, and working with those entities to make sure that they're aware of the projects, they're aware of what's happening, um, and being on the lookout for opportunities for the federal funding coming in to free up other resources that could be used to support working waterfronts. Um, so, you know, if you're Working waterfront project includes coastal restoration or marine debris. This bill's great news. If you need dredging um, and are really far down on the list of authorized dredging projects, you might actually see some dredging happening. That's been a huge issue for small harbors across the country. Um, just knowing that they could get dredged at some point um, is huge. Happy to dig into the bill a little bit more if that's helpful too. Let's provide a little bit of an overview. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's there's a lot um, going around about this bill. And so to really just kind of pinpoint some of these specifics, like even, um, and that's, you know, those, those perspectives on broadband and stuff, that's really important and something people don't really think about. Um, but yeah, like even smaller things like like fisheries and, and aquaculture, like if there's there's ways that they're even thinking about this money, yeah, please, please dive further. All right. So diving in just to you know make sure everybody's on the same page. On August 10th, the Senate passed the bipartisan infrastructure package. It's a big bill, almost a trillion dollars of spending over five years. Includes some new authorizations for surface transportation, um, some reauthorization, some additional investments in transportation, drinking water, wastewater infrastructure, um, clean energy provisions. A lot of the the bill funds new or reauthorized programs. Um, providing substantial appropriations to existing programs. The bill itself is 2,700 pages long. It's got a lot of details in it. Um, you know, a, a good example of the kind of detail in there is on page 1,203, the Sportfish Restoration Fund is reauthorized through um, 2026 with some programmatic changes and some additional language um, to start studying derelict vessels. There's also some language focused on the growth of the non-motorized recreational boat sector. Um, there are lots of little details like that in the bill. Um, and so try to pick out a couple of them. Um, you know, on the... Looking at NOAA, so, you know, there's billions of dollars for transportation and wastewater infrastructure and clean energy work. Um, looking at NOAA, NOAA is slated to receive an additional $2.6 billion over five years. I think that will make a real difference in the availability of funding in some places. Um, NOAA's annual budget is, you know, in the five to $6 billion a year range. So, you know, half of that, again, over five years is pretty, pretty significant, particularly because a bunch of NOAA's budget is in satellites and weather. Um Ecosystem restoration and green infrastructure, flood mapping, climate resiliency, modeling all have um, a pretty good priority in the build. There's $150 million for marine debris. There's an additional $50 million for marine debris work through Sea Grant. Um, there's $200 million for coastal zone management, Section 10 habitat restoration grants. There's $77 million for habitat restoration through the NEARS program, $100 million for the um, ocean observing program. 50 million for regional ocean partnerships, 400 million for Magnuson-Stevens related fish passage work um, and other funds. This is a lot of money coming into a couple of areas where NOAA works. Um, how that 
happens, what that means, um, where where this money goes from here is certainly um, certainly something to keep an eye on. You know, if you're if you're a working waterfront and you're partnering with a, one of your local Nastrestrian Research Reserve partners, um, they've got a lot of money for habitat restoration. Um, that could be a pretty interesting way to move a project forward. Um, for example. Yeah, no, that's. Th- I, I appreciate you providing all of that homework for us because I'll, you know a lot of people aren't reading into those nitty gritty details. But yeah, that's that's a significant amount of funding just specifically for these kind of like coastal zones, and and NOAA for sure is is a huge part of that. Um, at the Island Institute, you know, working with your communities that you do. Are you guys kind of doing any outreach or education or anything related to the infrastructure bill, or is it more kind of waiting to see if it's passed before those conversations happen? We've really been waiting to see uh, if it's passed before we have the direct conversations. But in the meantime, we've been working with our partners and working waterfront issues to ensure that the conversation is at the fore. And thankfully this year, we're able to uh, ensure that there's about $4 million in Maine's budget to support our own personal working waterfront access protection program at the state level. So while we imagine our work's gonna be a a lot more focused on the federal infrastructure bill once once we have more details, that doesn't mean we're not working behind the scenes and with other partners to ensure that people are ready to take advantage of um, what uh, what funds may be available. And I think one of the exciting things that Nick brought up, even where there isn't money specifically intended for working waterfront specifically in this infrastructure package, the fact that this is such a huge investment can free up other monies that the state has and that local communities have and that individual businesses have to make targeted investments in the working waterfront. So even if it's an indirect benefit, um, this large amount of money flowing into the, the various states and into the sector is is going to benefit working waterfronts. Yeah, definitely. And kind of a transition over to considering some of the other communities and and effects of, of being near uh, the working waterfront, uh, marginalized populations and, and some minority communities um, have often been uh, kind of adversely affected by being some of n- near some of these major operations and stuff. Um, and not sure if this is a consideration, but I'm really curious to think if, if some of this federal infrastructure money can help to address some of these impacts of like noise, noise pollution and air pollution and water pollution. Um, Is there anything that you guys have come across that you think that this could really benefit those types of communities? I'm hoping and I think that we are actively working to ensure that when these monies come, they come to those communities that are most in need of them. And oftentimes uh, putting a, a lens of equity and inclusion on the application and the availability of these funds, I think, is a critical first step. I, I think the other thing that's just worth saying here and, and naming is oftentimes communities, particularly marginalized communities, struggle to access these funds um, because applying for a major federal grant uh, or a federal grant or federal funding through a state program is often not the easiest thing to do. It takes a, it takes capacity, it takes dedicated staff time, it takes resources. And when we, when we look at, you know, how do, how do we at the Island Institute want to make sure we're we're doing our best to make sure that the funds go to the people who need them and the projects that need them. A lot of that comes back to local capacity building. It comes back to technical assistance. It comes back to the work that Sea Grant does every day as extension agents to support businesses and individuals in, in communities in this sector. And I, I think, you know, for me, a well, the infrastructure package itself doesn't have the, you know, a lot of line items in the funding for this kind of technical assistance. It's an incredible opportunity for those organizations out there that are providing this kind of um, technical assistance or capacity building or bridging organizations that can support communities and people and projects as they access these funds. And so I I think there's a, a big opportunity for people to 
help these funds go to the right place, even if the institutional and the structures aren't aren't driving them there. Um, it's about how we all interact with the funds too. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy you said that, and and that's a really good point. I mean, these it's so broad and so much money that I do think people and institutions and organizations can get flex, um, creative and kind of think outside the box of like what these funds can be used for. Um, and see, so, yeah, I mean, I know Maine has many initiatives themselves because the coastline is so important to the state. Um, some of these initiatives include like Sea Main and Maine Climate Action Plan, and there's a specific bill, Pingree's uh, bipartisan legislation to protect America's working waterfronts, specifically for access and preserving these important spaces. Um, there's a lot out there, and do you think that you know? I mean, it sounds like this bill can really help to bolster those those efforts already happening in Maine all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. And just the the scope and breadth of initiatives and projects that are going on in Maine right now to support the marine sector just highlights its importance. And it highlights the investments that we're already really willing to make. And this infrastructure bill uh, can come in and help to actually implement a lot of the projects that have been presented as needs within a lot of these initiatives, helping our coastal economy become more climate resilient, helping ensure that we have uh, a more robust and vibrant workforce, and ensuring that we're working collaboratively to craft our seafood economy to be of the future rather than of the past. Yeah, and 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 hopefully, just like I said, the the working waterfront is made up of all these different industries trying to you know preserve their space and be on there. But I I feel like it could open up you know partnerships between some of these larger industries and institution and maybe some of the smaller ones because that access and resilience is so important to both. Do you know if you know there's conversations around partnerships between, you know, major like port and harbor industries, and then like some of the small coastal communities and fisheries? Uh, one immediately jumps to mind. We've been lucky enough to start working more extensively with the city of Eastport. Um, it's the easternmost city in the U.S. and uh, the easternmost deep water port in the U.S. as well. And there's a strong history of um, work coming out of that port, shipping connections to main timber, Maine's timber industry and opportunities for that to grow in the future. It is also home of Maine's kind of unique and iconic dayboat scallop fishery um, that represents kind of the quintessential small scale working waterfront. And as both industry and both the Port Authority look to develop and make their plans for the future, they're recognizing that some of these um, whether it's uh, recovery money coming through uh, FEMA or whether it's this infrastructure bill, represent really great opportunities to partner and ensure that work to support one portion of the marine economy is helping to bolster other parts. And I would just add in, you know, in big ports, there are often still smaller boats. There's still fam fishing families that are working out of the larger ports um, and making sure that that infrastructure is available to them is is really important and whether it's um you know the the fish pier in in portland maine or it's the um the fishing pier the public fishing pier in um san francisco um there's a there's a hoist there and we've got some friends and colleagues who um fish out of that out of that pier um a lot of our bigger ports also have some of these smaller places or smaller docks that support um, support some of the smaller fishermen. And that's that's an important part of our infrastructure too. Oh, really? That's that's really interesting. I don't um, try to think of my experience down here with the Port of Corpus Christi. That's not something I'm aware that they kind of accommodate. So there's some major ports in, in Maine that that provide space for some of these smaller, you know, fisheries and commercials, fisheries uh, industries. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there's Portland is is the one of the bigger ports in the state, and we've got a lot of oil tankers that go in and out of there, and other other kinds of cargo. Um, and there are, I want to say, there's 150 lobstermen who base out of there. Our small boat groundfish fleet, um, 
about half of them are based out of Portland. Um, they're, they're all there and they're all on the waterfront and they're all mixed together with some boatyards and some shipyards and some marine transportation um, facilities. They're all part of the Port of Portland. Um, and, you know, they might not be in, in the facility where they're unloading, um, you know, the, uh, the containers are being unloaded, but they're all right around there using the water, sharing the same ocean space, sharing land space, sharing access on the land for trucks and for everything else. It's going to the boats. <laughs> all, all you can think of. Yeah, no. And, and been, that's been a major issue that I've been seeing pop up all around the Great Lakes and such is that these, uh, these small family businesses really have to look elsewhere to unload every day because, you know, their, their access is just getting cut off and denied, but it does sound like Maine has a lot of great support from up top from like the political side of things. And you have representatives and Congress people who seem to know how important that coastal access is. Definitely. And I, I think, you know, in sort of thinking about coming back to the infrastructure package and what we're doing in Maine to get ready for significant federal funding, whether it's the infrastructure package or, or other funds, um, it's all it it's all comes back to getting your, your project together, getting the team together for that specific working waterfront, understanding, you know, what your vision for the future is, how you're going to be a resilient business, how you'll be a resilient working waterfront um, in the face of changing economic conditions or changing climate conditions or changing environmental conditions. And it's about figuring out, you know, what are the pieces of that project that you you can do and you can take on and how to take them on in an order that that makes sense. There's a fair bit of work in there and all of that work involves partners and partnerships and I think there is a lot of opportunity for people to make sure that their projects are ready to be funded, make sure they know where they want to go and what they want to do. The, these funds will be rolled out uh, probably faster than, you know, sl- slower than many people are hoping and faster than you can catch up if you're not getting ready to, to use them. If you're getting this process started when the funds rolled out, you might, you might not catch up. So I, now's the time to, get to work and to do that planning and to do that work. Um, In Maine, we're incredibly lucky. We have a a program where the state purchases um, a conservation easement effectively, a a working waterfront covenant from willing sellers. And that ensures that that working waterfront will be working waterfront forever. Um, The state buys that property interest. The state buys the development rights. Um, that program's not funded federally, but it benefited this year because we had the federal funds from the American Recovery Plan come into the state, and that was able to support a bunch of state priorities and needs that freed up other money in the state budget to fund the Land for Maine's Future program, um, where, our, where our working waterfront um, protection program resides, and that's that's been incredible. And so it's it's not just the money in the bill, as Sam said. It's it's how that money impacts government agencies and institutions, and what else it enables them to do. Yeah, getting getting creative. I I'm very very happy that I was able to have both of you on today and talking about the Island Institute because. I think uh, for others who may listen to this program, you've provided a lot of great examples and a great um, considerations about how to think outside the box and think about these funds. And I love that idea of, you know, maybe it's not spe- these funds aren't specified for something related to what you need, but it could fund other projects and open up the money that you need in other ways. Um, well, that's all I had on on my end, and I really appreciate both of you taking the time to talk about it. Um, that was a lot more detail about the infrastructure plan than I was ready for, and I'm glad that you brought it to the table. Um, Nick and Sam, thank you. Um, I, I, I look forward to, to speaking and working with you guys again in the future and seeing um, what you guys come up with. Thank you. It's great to talk with you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, Ashley, thank you for having us today. And I, uh, I look forward to 
talking with you again probably in about a year when we can talk about all the cool projects we've helped the state do thanks to this infrastructure money. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully it would be great. Uh, the waterfront, the, the network is, is trying to plan our in-person conference, crossing our fingers that we're able to hold it in a year. And it would be great if we could all meet up there and talk about it. Let's, let's, uh, let's cross our fingers on that one. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of this episode of the National Working Waterfronts podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what you heard today, I encourage you to grab a comfy chair, pour yourself a little drink, and seek out the full infrastructure bill. As our guests from the Island Institute demonstrated, there is a lot in there, and we've only just scratched the surface here today. One thing for sh- is for sure, if passed, this bill will have significant impacts on our nation's waterfronts. As always, be sure to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network to get this and all other great shows available for free wherever you get your pods. Oh, 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 oh